And I'm not saying this to butter you up, Joel, but I feel like you are the biggest get that I've gotten. He's, so he's the far. biggest get. He's the biggest. So get. Don't um, fuck it up. you're very wise, but you're also very practical. So you have this matter of fact advice. Well, why don't you quit being an idiot? And I'm like, yeah. oh my god, you're right. Keep I was being keep an it idiot. Simple, stupid. It's the yeah. best advice I've ever given. <laughs> but what okay. I thought was really interesting that you said is you were feeling stuck. For me, it was just incredible to hear because I look at you as very wise, very practical. You're a doctor. You know how to make life work. You have kids. You've raised them. You shouldn't have any problems ever. Yet you were feeling stuck. So I would love to talk about that. Yeah, I was recording already. So, oh, okay. Yeah, I just start the recording and then... Oh, wow. Are you serious? Yeah, of course. Then I can capture the, then the nuggets. Then this is where they're going to go, Yeah, we'll do the jam the snazzy intro in somewhere, wherever it feels right. And Give me like three minutes. I'm going to go make a sandwich. Absolutely. Or start. Can you please make that the part where he... You go with J Joe show. We don't ever do J Joe show. Have you, you have you ever listened? Have you ever listened to my podcast, Kevin? I'm your most regular listener. Okay. What's the, what's the song? So then you know there's not a J Joe what, show. Why, why am I thinking that? There was a song way back when that Jake created actually for the Joe show. Oh really? Do you remember this? We we're oh, gonna have a Joe okay. show. Never mind. And it that's, never that's happened. Way back. But he did like remember. the Marilyn Manson the dope show, and then he recorded himself singing. So wait, what's your intro song? It's just a free song that I got from Free Music Archive. But either way, you need to make the sandwich thing like right before you chime in. Oh, the sandwich thing will probably be in there. Give me three minutes. I'm going to go make a sandwich. Anytime somebody says, you have to edit this out, that's guaranteed I'm not going to edit this out. Our largest demographic is females 23 to 28. Okay. So we have to really... I didn't even know that. Spotify gives all these stats. Okay. It's pretty awesome, actually. We have to pander. I thought you were going to say our largest demographic is people with short attention spans. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're here. We're joined by Joel, Dr. Joel Hughes. We also have Kevin and Chris Baker. What's up? Chris is also a doctor. So there's two doctors and two non-doctors. The right ratio we finally achieved. Non-doctors rule. Okay, so we're here with Joel. We want to focus on Joel, talk about his life, his walk with Christ, how he came to Christ, how he really decided to start following Christ, and then what's going on now. So there'll be a lot there. We also have, I have some, I don't know about you guys, some questions that I want to ask Joel. What do you think, Chris? I think that's a great idea, Joe. Yeah, I have a laundry <laughs> list of questions. I was able to generate the 45 minutes I uh, had between when you asked me to do this podcast and we're recording this podcast okay cool On today's episode, Joel grew up in a Christian home where truth was paramount. Then God worked to use his discontent for the institutional church and his pursuit of a PhD to bring him to Northeast Ohio and give him a vibrant campus ministry. I made the connection that my dad would absolutely die for her to be saved. And he did. You know, he was going to die anyway. But it happened at a time that she could witness what it was like for the body of Christ to rally around one of its own. Okay, Joel. So uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. So my story of receiving Christ is the story that you get from a typical church kid. Uh, very boring. 
I was four years old, and my dad, the late, great Howard G. Hughes, not the crazy one, not the rich one, but my dad, prayed with me as I received Christ when I was four. And then I don't know that that was real, because what does a four-year-old know? And so when I was 12, I was worried that it didn't count. And so I remember distinctly being about 12 and thinking, I got to take this seriously. And so I just like prayed again to make sure. And I probably did that three or four times because, you know, what does a 12-year-old know? And so I've long believed that between about 12 and 17, a lot of people really kind of awaken to spiritual things. And that's when Jesus' disciples, he really called them between 16 and 20, roughly. You know, only Peter was probably over 18 uh, when he started following Christ. That's really where it all started, though. It was 12 or so when I thought, you know, I really have to take this seriously. And I grew up in a conservative Baptist church, and it was very dead in a way. Then I went to college, and I decided that for college I was going to go to a Christian university because I thought it was really important for me to learn how to articulate my faith and defend my faith and understand the Christian worldview. And so I ended up at Biola University, and that's where I really learned a huge amount. It's interesting. A lot of Christian kids have said this, that they received Christ really early on, and then they had to go back and make sure that it really happened, and they yeah, had absolutely. to keep doing it. And then it sounds like also there was never a question of, would you? be a Christian, it was just, when would it happen? And how serious would you take it? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, people are circumcised on the eighth day, and they're not really asked if they'd like to be part of the Jewish community, you know? But the assumption is, if you're Jewish, you know, in Israel, you're going to be circumcised, and you are part of the community. And then there will come a day when you can decide if you're going to adopt this for yourself. I do believe that there's an age at which people suddenly realize, wow, this is important. So I was kind of like that. I was 12, but it was the same idea. I just realized this this matters, and I better be serious about this and not just blow it off. So it wasn't like a lack of belief necessarily. It was just no. like an affirmation, like, I need to actually make sure that I'm covered. We talk sometimes about the decision to receive Christ and the decision to follow Christ, which can be slightly different. And there's some controversy on that. But for me, I think that that makes sense, that some people, they want to be covered. And then there's other people that are like, I need to really do this. You know, I'm all in. And so for me, I think I was 12 when I realized sure. that, like, this is the way my life has to go. That's why I decided I had to go to a Christian university. So I did not apply to secular universities except for a backup school. And I was like, I need to go somewhere where people understand me and where I can learn because I knew that this, the culture in the 80s was already turning secular. I needed to find a place where people were on the same page as me. Then I go off to college and it was amazing. The one thing I would say about college for me was that I was not that involved in a local fellowship. We all had the mistaken impression that being in a dorm with a bunch of uh, other Christians and taking theology classes and Bible classes and going to chapel three times a week, that this was enough community. And in hindsight, I don't think that's true. And then that lasted even even through the years after I got married, uh, there was a couple years where we just weren't doing much. We would kind of shop around for churches. Did you know that there was something more or there should be something more? I knew to Christianity than what you're doing at that time? Yes and no. I mean, I knew that I was always cynical and had a bad attitude and I knew there's something wrong. And so I could see the antithesis that whatever we're doing is stupid it's... at a very deep level. And I didn't know what it was. And I just felt like an outsider and a, like a weirdo in the church. And 
and partly this might have been because when I was in my the church that I grew up in, I didn't really have a peer group. I mean, they, they went to different schools, and so they didn't like me. And so I'll never forget, there was a, a day that the youth pastor sat us all down, and we, he wrote on the chalkboard all the people that had come to visit our fellowship. And we wrote like 30 names. And then he asked us, how many people have ever come back? And the answer was zero. Wow. And so, and I was like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Um, because they, I was an outcast. I stopped going to my own youth group because I couldn't get a ride home with anybody. And so I would have to go to the church office and call my mom to come and get me after youth group. And so I knew something is wrong with this. This isn't right. This isn't right. But the thing is, for me, given my dad, I understood theology and I knew there's no option that you, this is what is true. So you got to go with this. And I was not the kind of person that would walk away from church permanently. You can't do that. It felt disloyal to me. But I knew that something about church is terrible. And I didn't know what it was until... Fast forward a few years, we were in uh, Columbus, and we had just gotten there from Colorado Springs. We had been in my master's degree at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Catherine was working for Focus on the Family, and she's in marketing of uh, magazines. So she goes to these meetings where she gets free books by Christians. And one of them was the book by that Dennis McCallum edited, uh, The Death of Truth. And so I'd been at Biola. J.P. Moreland was my philosophy professor. I understood postmodernism. And I, I read that book as we were moving to Columbus because someone handed it to her and said, oh, you're going to Columbus. This church is in Columbus. And so I read that book and I was like, oh my goodness, these people <laughs> understand where we're at as a society right now. And I said, we're going to that church. And so uh, we, instead, we visited various other churches and sat in the wooden pews and sang some hymns. But, so wait a minute. You said, we're for sure going to that church, but instead you <laughs> went to some other church. Well, it was 45 shots around. It was far. We lived in Delaware, Ohio, which we thought was a suburb of Columbus because in the apartment guide map, it looked like it was right by the 270. Uh, this is before the internet was really that popular. You would like get an apartment guide in the mail and you would try to find somewhere to live. I ended up having a 45 minute commute to school uh, for the first six months until we uh, bought a house. But anyway, we did end up at Xenos one day and I'll never forget the first day walking in and they're all like dressed like they're gonna wash their car. <laughs> Not what I was used to. I didn't see a single tie. People are eating donuts in the sanctuary, which was a warehouse. And they're drinking coffee. The band is playing a Steely Dan cover. You know, I, I knew I liked it. And then Dennis was teaching, and it usually was Gary, but Dennis was teaching this morning for some reason. And after I heard him teach, I said, okay, this is our new church. Because I had found a place where they were not ridiculous and uptight. And I had been raised as a Pharisee of Pharisees to be legalistic and ridiculous. And so I knew that that was stupid, but I didn't know what to do about it. And then I end up at this church where they are teaching the actual Bible. This is the author of the book that understands postmodernism. People are being real. We immediately tried to sign up to be in a home church because they said you should be in a home church. Finally, they call and they say, oh, you know what? There's a home church near you. So we show up at home church and it's we're the youngest by 10 to 15 years. And so I'm in my 20s and the next youngest person is probably in their 30s, maybe 40s. I mean, we, it was definitely multi-generational. But we were the leading edge of the youth in that home church. Mm -hmm. The age range was us to 80s. It was spectacular. <laughs> it's similar to our home church. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's why, you know what, I've never been against multi-generational home churches. That's fine. It's good for people to learn from different generations. Yeah, there, there's a lot of good that goes with that. So we were there, and then that was where I think I started to, like, melt a little bit in terms of, like, the ice of the Pharisee and the, like, uh, dishonesty, rigidity, and legalism started to uh, encounter the actual body life. It's like, this is what church should be. And so for us, that was really where we woke up. And we were like, this is just not the same as the institution 
that we had come from, at least I had come from. Catherine would have a different take on that. But for me, I was like, this is not the church of my youth. I was overjoyed. And then catastrophe hit when I was finishing up at Ohio State. To get a PhD in clinical psychology, you have to match nationally with an internship program. And I thought, and there's none in Columbus. There are zero internships in Columbus that I could do. And everyone was saying, you know, why do you have to leave? You should stay here forever. And I was like, I get that, but there's nothing. I, you know, the closest is a Cleveland VA. So I tried. I tried to match with the Cleveland VA, sort of. Um, I ended up matching with uh, Durham, the Durham VA. Did you ever consider not doing a PhD? Um, no. Actually, I always knew. Most people change majors, but I started as a psychology major, and I decided I was going to be a psychology professor. And then, of course, there's the two years I did not get into graduate school, and my wife turned to me and said, are you ever going to get into graduate school? Two years? <laughs> What'd you do? I worked for Easter Seals with people who are disabled as a job coach and program coordinator. I worked at a um, human resources, like temporary firm where they hire people to put on jobs, working with engineers to like put them at different engineering jobs. I was a coordinator for that. You crushed it, I imagine. No, I got fired. That was the first job I ever got fired from. And the last. Okay. (laughs) But that was a, I mean, I got fired once from a, like a one day assignment as a college student to do inventory for a store, but my handwriting was so illegible that- They fired you for bad handwriting. They're like, you're done, come here. This is just not going to work out. Is this a six or a B? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. That was the end of that. But an actual job that I had, my first job out of college, I think I was making the princely sum of $24,000 a year. Hell yeah. In 1992. And I got fired after six months, after promotion. So they promoted me, moved me to the main office. And and then fired you? And I don't, I don't, I was kind of a um, odd person and still am. And uh, I think that I did not fit the corporate culture. And so I ended up getting fired from that. And then I ended up at Easter Seals eventually working with the disabled. And that was kind of fun. And applying to graduate school and no dice. Well, the first year I applied, I thought I would just go where I wanted because I had the GPA. I had the test scores. I applied to three schools. That turns out to be a big mistake because you can't just decide. Well, in psychology, it's more competitive than med school. And so you usually apply to 10 to 20 schools. And at Kent hope. State, we get 300 applications. We take 10 people. So it's pretty brutal. And I didn't know that. But when I after two years, I went and got a master's degree. And that's where they sent me straight. They said, number one, Joel, you don't have any research experience. That makes sense. Number two, why do you apply to three schools? That's terrible. And so I learned in my master's program how to actually win at the admissions game, which is why I wrote a book about it. Yeah, and that, that's a segue <laughs> into the book you wrote and the podcast you do. Yeah, which is irrelevant to today's discussion, but I did write a book. You know, it was the 30th anniversary of me going to college, which is when I was pretty much writing this book on how to succeed at either getting a job or getting into graduate school if you're a psychology major. And probably 90% of the concepts are transferable. But I was writing from the perspective of, okay, I've been there, I've done that, I've been the admissions coordinator, I've been an undergraduate coordinator, I'm now director of clinical training, I get how to get in. If anyone knows how to get in, it would be you. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 49, coming up on 50. You're a young man. (laughs) You're as young as you feel, right? Yeah. Keep telling yourself. What is the name of the book you wrote on this? Oh, that was called uh, Psychology Pathways. How psychology majors get into graduate school and launch careers. All right, psychology pathways, <laughs> all of our listeners. But that's not the point today. But, <laughs> but go ahead. But I mean, by the book, yeah. Well, whatever. The point is, is that I went to graduate school. I ended up at Xenos, and then I had to do an internship in Durham, North Carolina. We got involved in a church there. Because I've always been the kind of person that wherever I am, I get involved. I think that's right. I think that if you're a Christian, you get involved in your local fellowship wherever you happen to be. And it was fine, but it wasn't great. And then coming off of my postdoctoral fellowship, I needed to get a job. 
and I launched a national job search. I didn't know that there was a franchise of Xenos up in Northeast Ohio, but we ended up talking to uh, one of our home church leaders from Columbus, and she said, I think there's a Xenox up in the Kent area. And I was like, really? And they had an opening. And so I applied, even though there's not a medical center at Kent State University, which I kind of need. How long was your postdoc? Two years. Okay, so So you're gone for two years. uh, Three years. Internship for one year, and then I walked across the street to Duke and said, give me a postdoc, and I got that to happen. So I was there in Durham for three years. Morgan was born probably eight months before we went there. So here we are with a three-year-old and, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old in tow. Brand new kid. Kind of the worst part of the marriage and family was in Duke, uh, you know, in North Carolina. You're not making any money, probably. Nope. Not making any money. Catherine's making some money. She made way more than I did. So she's hoping to stay afloat. But there was some problems there with... I think she was really unhappy that I had taken her away from all her friends in Columbus. And it was... The church just wasn't the same. And it was fine for what it was. And then they don't have what we have in terms of body life. And I think a lot of people don't know that because they haven't been out there and tasted what it's like. There are a lot of really, really vibrant fellowships in various places. But they're kind of like little pockets that you have to find. And the, your run-of-the-mill church is you show up on Sunday, maybe Wednesday night, and that's it. And so what we do is just so different. We only reach people, generally speaking, that are unchurched or not from a church background. But what's interesting is you are kind of the exception to that. Yeah, I don't know where that comes from. It probably comes from my dad. You were always kind of not content with the situation content. that you were in and tried to make it work. But we're to always... make it work, but I want it to be better. And to be honest, that's kind of a flaw. I'm... Everything in life needs to be better at all times. And so people uh, get frustrated with me. discontent. Yeah, I'm a discontent. People get frustrated with me because my personality is to see where we're at now and to see how much better it could be with just a little tweaking. And that drives people crazy when I'm like, you know what would make it better? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I felt that way about church too. And then uh, it probably comes from my dad. So when we get to Xenos in Northeast Ohio, for about a year, I kind of felt like I was on drugs. But I felt like... Um, yeah, you're going to have to explain that. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like there was just railroad tracks laid down that we were coming to Northeast Ohio. Because when I was in Columbus, I knew that there was no future there. And there's no future there because they had so much leadership and so many workers, they had so much power that there was nowhere for me to go. You know, I had asked, can I work with college students? And they're like, absolutely not. You have to, <laughs> you know, you have to either be in college or be right out of college. You know, there's just no reason for you to do that. You know, looking around, I could tell that they were completely stacked with talent. I was going to ride the bench forever. And so <laughs> I knew that it was okay to leave, even though everyone was saying, why would you ever leave this? And I, I get where they're coming from. But then when I got to Northeast Ohio, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. It was kind of crazy. You were you were there in those yeah, days. Yeah, we need you to do 18 different things. I yeah. mean, that's the only reason I ever got to do anything is because yeah. there was nobody else to do it, which was, I mean, for me, is great. So if, if this is the wild, wild west where I remember Dar told me one week they're in Bible study and next week they've decided to become witches and they're gone. You know, and I was like, how can that happen? <laughs> Here, people are more open and they'll, they'll let you know. So I felt like, you know, God had just put a hook in my jaw like Jonah and just dragged me here. And I didn't know what that was going to mean, but I knew I was here and this is what I was going to do. This is what I'm going to do with my life. And so for a long time, Keith was extremely suspicious because he thought that I was some Messiah from Columbus sent up here to set things straight. He thought they actually sent you. <laughs> no, not, not that they really sent fun. me, but that I would have a Messiah complex. And he was right. <laughs> 
Although I wasn't, I was sincere and earnest, but it is true that a Pharisee always brings in their Messiah complex and he knows how things ought to go. And it took a long time for me to understand that it's not going to go my way. And eventually he figured out that I was not here to ruin everything and to be better than everybody else, but that I really did just want to serve in whatever capacity. And so it took a long time, but finally I was allowed to do something with college students, which has always been my plan. Because again, J.P. Moreland was in chapel one day and he's like, you know, why aren't there more Christian professors? If you're a Christian professor, they should bring you down to the front of your congregation, lay hands on you as a missionary and send you into the campus. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And then uh, no one ever saw me that way or had the same vision I had. Everyone thought you're crazy. But I finally got an opportunity to start a prayer meeting at nine in the morning on a Tuesday. Yeah. No one attended. Okay. So you, yeah, I was going to say, how did you start? Because you weren't first. No, I was not. You didn't first just start being a leader in the college. Oh, absolutely not. I was in a home church uh, just doing my time. And we had taken all of the Christian principles in Columbus. We had done everything we could do. I could teach home church. I was, you know, I was trying as hard as I could. But my entree into college ministry was the 9 a.m. Tuesday prayer meeting that was extraordinarily unpopular. <laughs> I think you could imagine why. You can imagine why. And But I did it. Because I would actually have to get up at 9 a.m. Yeah. to go to this thing on Tuesday morning. Yeah, and so I would show up every Tuesday and people would not come. Uh, I did that for a while. You would come to our house, right? Yeah, yeah. 320 yeah. East College yeah, Avenue. Yeah, you would come to our house. I, I remember this. Still my favorite ministry house. It was yeah. so fun hanging on the porch of 320 East College Avenue. And then I, I remember one day, Keith said, you know what you're going to have to do is leave your adult home church and move to the college home church. And I was like, okay. Beep, 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 beep. Well, I didn't realize what that meant. I thought we'll do both. He's like, no, you can't do both. To be honest, right now, I don't really remember exactly what happened, but we just kind of evolved into being in the college home church after a while. And he like said, you know what? I'm not doing a good job with my cell group because I don't have the time because I've got this high school ministry, so why don't you be in my cell group? And then I did that for a while. I took over one of Keith's cell groups. He has multiple cell groups? Well, he did at the time, because he was working really hard in the high school. And then he also had a college cell group, and they called me the cell group manager. I mean, at that time, it was like Joel's describing. Like, if you were like, I want to do something, then there's like 18 things for you to do. Yeah, there was no shortage of opportunities when we had maybe 80 people in the fellowship. Yeah, so somebody like Keith was doing oh, yeah. everything. I mean, he's still at a full-time job, you know, so he's working full-time. He's running a high school ministry. In multiple cell group. Yeah, he's in a high school cell group, a college cell group, and he's like, I can't get with these college kids. Why don't you do it? And so I did it. And of course, I ran it like a good old conservative Baptist church, you know, because I had no idea what I was doing. And so it was not good. I was in the cell You were? Group, right? Do you remember driving out? to uh, Blossom in his van, the Gladiator, for him to confront everyone on just give Joel a chance. I do remember that. Yes. Just give Joel a chance. Give him a chance. I remember a lot of driving places in the Gladiator and not really knowing what was going to happen. The Gladiator. That's how it all started. That was the CBS Campus Bible Study. And then in 2008, we launched again with Kyle and the new college group. But the point is, is that we came to Northeast Ohio. It was a vacuum. It was crazy. It was real. It was more real than what we had come from in some ways. And it's been quite an adventure. Yeah. I think it's really cool that one of the themes that I've been seeing in a lot of these stories is they're all different, right? But then that aspect of like you're discontent and you, you're yeah. like, okay, I'm fine where I am, but I want something more, Lord. Is there anything like that out there? And then the Lord hooks it up. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't know. I knew something was wrong. 
And I'd be sitting in chapel, you know, singing worship songs, thinking, this is insane. I don't know why. Maybe I'm a terrible person, but something about this is just weird. You know, I played the drums for the worship band in multiple churches, and I kept thinking like, okay, I see what we're doing here, but I don't understand what this has to do with anything. I mean, I remember I can picture the sights and the sounds and the smells of the Catholic Church doing this standing and kneeling and yeah. lighting the candles, thinking like, this is ridiculous. Like, if this is what you want, God, I'll do it. But like, there's got to be something more yeah. than doing this. And what's more is real relationships. And what's kind of weird is that it comes full circle because when you are when you just do the same ritual for, you know, 30 years, it becomes so dry and stupid. But for us, I think it would be different. And I think that we've sometimes we've had that experience where we go to something and we're like... I'm just going to go all out. This is super fun. It's not the form that it takes. It's the like the attitude that you have. And when everybody is there putting on a show trying to pretend to be holy, it's just dumb. But when you're not, when you're like, I actually know these people and I actually like can talk to them about my actual life, then whatever it is that the form takes, whether it's maybe singing or public prayer or having a dance party or a Bible teaching, isn't stupid anymore because you're actually doing something with people that actually know. To, for, so for me, it all comes down to the actual body life. It's just so important. So I have three questions. You said earlier that like you never entertained leaving the church because of some sense of loyalty. Yeah. The loyalty was towards because like, your dad? No, it was towards, because this is where God, this is where God's people are, and this is where the truth is taught. And so no matter how bad the church might feel, what are you going to do? Are you going to go into the world? And so I didn't even have a category for the doctrine of the cosmos yet because that isn't taught. But I knew that just to go do whatever the hell I wanted to would be pretty dark. So it was loyalty to God. I would be a beast. Not to, your, not, not to my dad per se, but I think that we would have long discussions of theology. Yeah. And that, so I think that that's where it kind of lit the fire of like you, truth is more important than almost anything. So that leads into the second question, which was like your dad, I knew him, was very theologically sound, yet he still brought you up in this Southern Baptist church. Conservative Baptist. And then you moved here knowing that body life was really important, but that's probably not what your experience was in no. the Southern Baptist. So how did you know that that was important? Well, my dad didn't have that. I mean, he, right. got, he got saved when he was 17 in Montana, and then he went to... Seattle Pacific, which was a Christian school where he was brutalized by roommates, and he ended up at Multnomah School of the Bible because he was, once he was a Christian, he was very committed and he was studying all the time. Where we lived, that was all you got. You're either connected to the, to God through a church that sucks or you're not connected, you know, and you can do the Lone Ranger thing, but I've never thought that that was a legitimate option. He was very committed, but then when we moved here, I actually talked uh, my dad and my mom into moving here too. His last years here were the best of his life because he also then found a place where it's not just a bunch of Pharisees sitting around trying to excel at the law and where people are actually real and open and honest and so it revolutionized his life too. It was really beautiful to see and he he moved here because of our you know my kids you know I talked to him because of grandchildren but once he found Xenos he was like yeah this is it but I don't know I've always been the kind of person that like if it's true you should do that. So you had this conviction about going to undergrad at a Christian school but Mm -hmm. that seemed to like disappear here once you were looking at graduates. Oh, absolutely. And then also you had this conviction about body life, but that seemed to disappear when you were looking for a postdoc. Well, I knew that if I didn't finish my PhD, I could make about $8 an hour at a you know fast food restaurant. Yeah. And if I finished the PhD, I could have a career. Yeah. And so 
I had to do that, you know, and it's true also of medicine. And so I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, I don't know that it's good to go into a career path that's going to re- that's going to make you move. And so it's been nomadic to have been on the faculty. You know, you, you go to different places to get that done. It's worked out, but it's, it is rough. I don't necessarily recommend it because a lot of let's imagine you go into medicine and then you have to match with a residency and it's in Chicago's. You know, you have to move to Chicago or you're not a resident and then you don't get to finish whatever it is you're doing. And so that can be really, really hard. It's, it reduces a lot of degrees of freedom from what you're going to do. But my plan was always be a Christian professor. It seems like the missing piece is God's provision, though. Yes. You were like, I've got to do this because this is the only way this is going to happen. But like the conversation didn't really lead. If I stayed, what would God? That makes sense in, in some respect, because on the one hand, God's provision ended up being something I didn't see coming. Yeah. Right. Like there was another Xenos somewhere. Sure. That was. But it's I don't think um, God provides things that just aren't there. And so in Columbus, there isn't an internship. So there's not going to be a way for me to finish my PhD. Yeah. But what there was that I did not know was that there was more than one group like this. There are other groups in the country that are also like this that we just probably don't know about. And so I could make it work a lot of places, but I think that uh, in God's providence and his provision, the best place for me was here, which is why I'm, I'm here now. Yeah, I agree. And I'm a lifer. I've been told by my uh, program officer at the National Institutes of Health that like maybe I'm at the wrong university because <laughs> there's not a medical center. So and it's just like... The, out there opportunity. Yeah, but I'm, I'm done looking at opportunities. You're like, ah, I'm at the right so university. The last question I'm where is I am. The, the gorilla in the room is like, you kind of blew by it. How did you get hooked up with a wife who's like so out of your league i did marry up as brooks <laughs> brooks put it that way it's not just yeah, my that's idea how we got that from okay <laughs> <laughs> asking you for questions yeah uh in college i ended up meeting Catherine, and in the obliviousness that is my life. I had no idea that that was interesting or important. Our roommates were dating and we would drive to Hollywood to go to record stores and hang out in Hollywood. And there was a 45 minute drive back and forth to Hollywood and our roommates would sit in the back seat and make out. And me and Catherine <laughs> were stuck in the front seat and she had a boyfriend. And so I wasn't really doing anything, but- That ain't no problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I would do is talk theology all the way there and back. Nice. So I'm talking about the Bible. <laughs> well, you know, I'm telling you, it, it works. It worked. It does. Yeah. because. I, didn't, I was just doing my thing. I was just talking about the Bible and God and this and that. And little did I know that she was moving towards breaking up with her boyfriend. After a year, one day, my roommate came to me and said, why aren't you talking to Catherine? Her roommate is so tired of hearing her talk about you. You've got to go get with Catherine because she's so into you and you don't even know that. And I was like, what? And so I immediately got up and went to where she was, which was in the art barn. And her hands are covered in clay. <laughs> she's throwing clay. She's muddy. And I show up, I'm like, hey, what's going on? And she like ran away, basically. She's like, watching, oh, I gotta go. And she left. And so I tracked her down again and uh, reeled her in because I was like, oh, that's a tremendous idea. So that was kind of a God thing because I had no vision for that. But in hindsight, my sister was like, remember that girl you kept talking about when you were home for Christmas break? You would not stop talking about that girl, which was Catherine. So clearly she was on my radar. I just didn't realize it because I'm very oblivious to those kind of things. <laughs> Even now when my graduate students like have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I, have, I don't know. I'm always the last to find out because I'm not paying attention at all. Cool. Good question. Thank you, Neil Brooks. In 2008, we launched Identity Project with eight people, okay. including Kyle McCallum. I still have a photo of our very first meeting in Eastway. We had 17 people show up. Most of those 17 are not here anymore, except for the eight that we started with. And at the end of the first year, I was depressed because we had not exploded. And then we had a campfire. Keith's like, we've got to get a fire together. And they gave <laughs> me one of those little mini computers that were all the rage. 
And they talked about, you know what? You're just looking for open hearts. It doesn't have to blow up. And then last fall was our 10th anniversary of starting Identity Project. And we were starting with, I think, five home churches and about 200 people. And so, yeah, it worked. But it just, you know, things take time. I've always been very impatient. So things take time. And then I think we have seven home churches now. And so, yeah, we're running, I don't know, 230, 240. Going into the fall, we'll see. I mean, people go home for the summer, but it's like it's grown and grown and grown. And a lot of the people are not in college anymore. But yeah, it's become something. And it wasn't me, obviously. Now it's like the center of mass of the church is people that were an identity project or are an identity project, you know? Yeah. Which is a dumb name, but whatever. Not a fan they picked it. Identity project. Well, what does that even mean? But they picked it, and so you got to let them own their, own their own ministry. I, I mean, like it, CBS. It's better than CBS. No, it's College not. Five. CBS is great. Okay, so why don't we talk about now what's going on now in your life, Joel? I thought it was really interesting you were saying that you were feeling stuck. Yes. I can't imagine somebody like you feeling stuck. I think it all started when I wrote the porn book. Because that was kind of a wild ride, a weird experience, and I learned a lot of things I did not know before. You know, I learned how I could write a book, for one. And so I started to have this idea that I could be an author. I had already started another book that was halfway done that I'd like to finish. I'm really struggling to finish because I just don't have time. The fallout from the first book was that I started to feel like what I need to do is to become more of an author, and that'll be a contribution that I make. Along with that, you know, my dad died in 2016. My mother-in-law died in 2016. Uh, I had a rotator cuff surgery. Even though I'm full professor, there's they give you more administrative work. So there's a lot of work to do. You know, I have my home church. We just split. When you split, you send a strong group. And what you're left with is a, a group that's like, okay, we sent all of our already made leaders. Why didn't we send our good people? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm being an ass. I know. Got to start all over again. <laughs> but you've, you've sent off everybody that's a deacon. And so you're raising up more deacons. And so then you're like, okay, I've got this home church I'm working with. I can't do anything because I've had a surgery and I can't do anything for 12 weeks. I have all these uh, responsibilities at work. My daughter is starting college, which was really quite a transition. You know, within a month, she'd lost two roommates and they couldn't afford their apartment anymore. And it was her best friend that left forever. You know, not even getting great grades, you know, really struggling. And so there was all this like difficulty in the fall and the spring. Coming off of the first book in 2017, I was feeling like when you learn so much, you feel like if I understand it, I should do it. And then coming into the spring, I felt like, okay, this summer I'm going to finish the college book and I'm going to start the other book and I'm going to do this thing and this thing and this thing. And I have these online classes I have to do and my home church is like really needing some tender love and care. And there's just so much going on. I was working seven days a week and no matter how hard I worked, I could not keep up. And so I started to feel really stuck. And I was like, what's, what the hell is going wrong? Because I was coming from a place to being sincere and trying. I had this fantasy that if I work really hard, I can retire early and be a full-time minister because I'll have a nice retirement. Somewhere along the way, I realized that I was becoming kind of a workaholic and that I felt like God was saying, what's the point in retiring early? Why don't you just do ministry now? and not wait until you retire early. What's the point in retiring early if you've been an asshole the whole way? And so maybe don't do that. And so I had the kind of what I called the project bankruptcy, where I just kind of deleted everything that I thought I was going to do that I can't do. And that really helped. So project bankruptcy is like you declare bankruptcy. I'm stealing the idea from email bankruptcy because I'm the kind of person that will have 20,000 unread emails. Okay, okay. Oh, no. And one day you just take all of your emails, push them into the archive and say they'll email back. 
Okay, if it's really important at all. <laughs> and go back to eat inbox zero. And it's fine, because they will. Where are you at right now? Oh, I don't even know, but I have, actually, I have a much better system now where I triage my email into VIP, regular inbox, and maybe. And maybe means I might read it. Probably not. Project bankruptcy means, what do I actually have to do to not be fired? You know, I have to do this project because it's my job. I have to teach this class because it's my job. I have to do this because it's my job. All the other stuff that I thought was important, I'm just not going to worry about it. The book that I was trying to write for college students, I'm not going to get it done. At least not this summer, you know, and not in the form that I thought. Maybe if I cut it in half and just do a little, little tiny book. But other than that, I just can't do it. And with the home church, I can't do everything. And so I just declared a kind of a like a list of do not do. Instead of a to-do list, I had a not to-do list. And then when I paired it back to what I actually have to do to like be relational and pay attention to my children and keep my job, then it suddenly was like a lot less stuff and that was a much better place to be this is like gotta be really hard for a person who i I don't know but i imagine takes a lot of their personality and identity from getting a lot of work done yeah yeah it is hard because i think that when you're pretty effective you feel like you should do what you can do yeah exactly you know, and it feels like the right thing to do. But then you come to a point where you're like, this is counterproductive because I'm like doing too much and I can't, I'm doing a bad job at things mm-hmm. and I cannot get it done. And so I just declared bankruptcy on all that. Just recently. Yeah, May. May, I was like, I was coming into that weekend thinking like, I'm going to have to work in my camper the whole weekend on this stuff or else I'm not going to be okay. See, Classes are starting and I am not done. This is helpful for me because I look at somebody like you and I've talked to people for the podcast even. They're like, oh, I'm meeting with Joe. I'm like... How does Joel have all the time to meet with all these people and do all this stuff and all, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, how does he have this time? I I don't do that. One thing I've done is I made a rule for myself when I started that I wasn't going to refuse meetings with people from fellowship and I I haven't. And so like if someone is in the college ministry and they need to meet with me, I don't say, you know, no. Where a lot of faculty just won't meet with people. I mean, you have to find them in person. They don't return phone calls. They don't return emails. And I don't think that's cool. And so I try to prioritize that I will actually meet with people that need to meet. And I also remember, I don't know, eight years ago, everyone was starting like the old folks ministries. And I thought I should do that too. And Keith sat me down and said, you know, what is wrong with you? (laughs) You do not need to start a ministry. You do not need to join a ministry. You have enough to do. And I realized that, you know, I'm I'm constantly meeting with people because if they have a depression or anxiety or some like, I'm triaging. I don't see them as patients, but I triage people all the time. You can be helpful. That is my ministry. I have plenty of times that I'm meeting with people because I'm helping them connect them with a therapist or uh, diagnosing what is wrong that can be fixed. And so that pretty much is my ministry. Ministry, and I, I don't try to like go serve loaves and fishes or one of the you know old folks ministries. I just don't. No, I can't do that. I'm not going to build a study center. You know, I'm just yeah. I'm not going to do some of that stuff because I I realize that I am doing enough individual meetings with people that have some kind of psychological concern. That is my ministry. That and teaching and discipleship and stuff like that. But anyway, that's what's been going on lately is kind of all my hopes and dreams have to die uh, <laughs> because I realize that just because you develop a capacity to do something doesn't mean that you can. And I take great comfort in the fact that uh, Tim Keller has written a bunch of books and people always ask him, why did you wait so long to write books? And he said that I couldn't write any books until my kids were done with high school. And I was like, okay, so I guess I'm not late. You know. <laughs> I still have a fourth grader. It's fascinating how you started like your story as like a perpetual discontent. Yeah. And now you've ended it with I need to be satisfied when I'm not happy where something is yeah. or something is where it is, but I 
I have to be. Yeah, I have to be. And to, if you want to go a layer deeper, one of the things I'm learning about myself is that I don't know that I have the character to handle doing much better in the sense that <laughs> yeah, I think that one of the things I'm learning about myself is that there's a reason why you're not a micro-celebrity. There's a reason why you're not a well-known author. There's a reason why you're going to be in obscurity a little bit. And I think it's because I don't know what would happen to me if I actually was in that space, like all of the Christian micro-celebrities that have books that people read. And part of the reason for that is because I don't know that I can I can handle it, you know. And I that's been a hard thing to learn. But what would happen, you know? I see a lot of the micro-celebrities that give up their personal discipleship ministry or that are not involved in the body of Christ. And so I've, I've made a commitment that I will never give up my personal discipleship in my home church and my personal a local body of Christ because that is more important. You know, Jesus never started a movement that was a big institution. He didn't write a bunch of books. He didn't do anything except his 12 disciples yeah, and his other followers. Yeah, he did the opposite of that. He yeah, he did. shunned the crowds and he shunned all that. 12 disciples. Yeah, he drove the crowds away by saying things like, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were like, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> Goodbye. And I think for Jesus, he had the character that he could have pulled it off, but I don't. And that's one of the things that's been tough for me to learn over the last few years, or maybe last Last year is that I think that there's a kind of a mercy in how God says, how about you calm down and don't do so much? A lot of people have a mega church and a lot of people fall when they have a mega church. You know, how many people have we seen that they grow a big church and they kind of get a big head and then they turn out to be alcoholic, anger problems that end up being like, you just couldn't handle it, could you? And you don't know going in, can I handle this? And so maybe it'll happen. I mean, I'm hoping that someday our church is very, very successful. But I used to have dreams that we would like have a bunch of people, we would need a big building. And I was on the you know building acquisition team back when we thought we could like build or like acquire a facility. And it turns out that, that was, none of that was going to happen. And in hindsight, I'm kind of glad it didn't yeah. happen because I think the, the new hotness is to figure out a way to stay street and small and viral somehow. I think that's where our fellowship might be headed. When I got here 15 years ago, everybody had the eye of the tiger and they had the will to survive. Like, if I don't show up, like, this isn't going to work. Yeah. And then when we crossed the threshold to more than 300 people in fellowship, and if we were to acquire a facility that wasn't borrowed space, you can very easily feel that you have arrived. And I think that that could be poison. How, if, inevitably, we grow to be 600, 1,200, how do we not turn into an institution. institution. Israel in the Exodus left Egypt and within however many generations they became Egypt. And so you can so easily become the thing that you don't want to be by just calcifying into another institution. And so that's that's my big concern right now is yeah. how do we not be that? Because there comes a limit to where you can meet. Yeah. And so there's a sense in which it's, you know, as soon as you make a really comfortable place for people to just do the Sunday yeah. and Wednesday night thing. And people get comfortable. People get comfortable. And I think that, you know, the older I get, the more that appeals to me to get comfortable and just kind of peace out. But it's like, that's so dangerous. And so, you know, I'm really interested in church planning. I'm really interested in staying small. I'm really interested in losing people, not to the world, but rather to like if we sent people somewhere else or we started other things. I'm really excited about having just a study center, but nowhere else. You know, study centers are designed to not be big enough for you to meet there. I don't know. I have no idea where this is going. But I do know that the worry is not to become an institution. For your kids to have a church that still has body life and isn't lame how can we not become another institution is kind of the big challenge before us in my opinion so do you think the future for you is always being involved in college ministry i think that college ministry is a place where i have credibility because i'm a professor 
so I can get away with it. I don't want to leave college ministry ever, but like, I mean, if it happens, it happens. So I don't really know. You're on the campus. I'm on the campus already. It's it's pretty. Yeah. How old is Coleman who wrote Master Plan of Evangelism? And, you know, he was on the campus still when we saw him in Columbus when he was speaking. So, so long as you can stay on the campus, I'd like to do that. It's kind of insane that there are no other Christian faculty. I mean, where are they? I joined a Facebook group of college ministers that has like 1,800 members, and I asked, where are the college professors? And there's very few. I mean, like two people answered. At Kent State, when they started a prayer meeting for faculty and staff, I was the only faculty person that came. And then uh, when InterVarsity Christian Fellowship came to talk about having a faculty fellowship, I was the only tenure-track faculty person who came. And I know there are Christians who are faculty members at Kent State. You know, the pressures of being on the faculty are so hard that it's really easy to think that I just need to find a church that has really good children's programs for my kids where I can go and sit in a pew. It's brutal out there. And so anyway, so I'd like to stay in college ministry. I just, I don't know the future. And I'll go where I'm needed, you know. I'm a good soldier. So I actually did want to ask you about your dad, though. Okay. So I didn't really even know him, but I met him a few times. And he was like the kindest, gentlest man that I'd ever met in my life. But my understanding from context close from what you've said he was not always that way. No. What transitioned him into becoming that? Was it like the fact that he was getting older? Was it the fact that he had grandkids now? Was it? I think he was always fairly kind. When I was growing up, he was pretty kind and rarely angry. He had a little bit of an anger management problem when he was younger, I think. But I think that uh, for him, it was an incredible amount of suffering that he went through and his uh, lifelong study of the Bible. And so every day for my entire youth, until I went to college, I would remember him disappearing for an hour a day to go study. I mean, he would re- bring his Greek New Testament to church because he might as well read along in Greek. And so he, he studied and studied and studied because for him, coming out of a unsaved, not Christian background, when he found God, he just lit on fire. And he went to Multnomah School of the Bible, met my mom, and he never, never stopped studying. He went to a Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary for a while. You know, he's constantly studying, learning Greek, learning everything. He got like 100% all his Greek tests basically because it was that important to him. So he like knew Greek. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Now you can forget, you know, you learn a language, you forget it pretty fast. And so he wasn't always perfect, but at one point he literally brought his Greek New Testament to church to follow along because he didn't (laughs) need the English. And so he would study and he he got to know Jesus. You know, he got to know God from the Bible. That combined with the fact that he had limitations that are insurmountable. Because he had that weird disease, the mitochondrial disease. Mm-hmm. So it kind of was like having the flu forever with pain. And so he had maybe two or three hours of good energy a day and pain at all times. And he did not act like a chronic pain patient because he was not neurotic. Yeah, you would not have known. known I mean, there were times where he was over-medicated and people would come to me and say, hey, he's falling asleep. And and they they cut way back on his narcotics at one point. And he would not talk about what he had in the house because he didn't want people to break in and steal it and kill him. You know, because he had fentanyl patches. He had serious, serious medication for his uh, disease. He lost, you know, 60 or 80 pounds of muscle and ended up dying of kidney failure. Apparently, you can't push 80 pounds of muscle through your kidneys without destroying them. And so I didn't know that till after the fact, but that's pretty much what took him. He had to live in very severe suffering. And I think also he was so brutalized as a young person because his his parents were not easy to get along with. They were both alcoholics. His dad was never satisfied. His dad was never proud. His mom was terrible. He grew up kind of in this space of life can be so hard and I'm such a disappointment. He was artistic and sensitive instead of uh, manly. 
like his dad would have wanted. He told me once that his dad never would go fishing with him again after the first time dad caught more fish than his dad. Really? Yeah, yeah he was, his dad was not a nice guy, but, <laughs> you know, he was what he was. He's from Montana, and they were like hunters and fishers and like, you know, rough and tough. So my dad grew up with this weird kind of like disapproval and being kind of a melancholy, sensitive person, very emotional, and then an incredible amount of suffering that beat the crap out of him combined with his 50 years of studying the Bible every day. So slowly molded him into, you didn't meet him until near the end of his life where he was like pretty gentle, right. pretty kind. He was always good with kids. So he was always able to get down on someone's level. And so, I mean, he had his flaws, but the one thing that I learned from him was a love of truth, a love of scripture, a love of God, and a loyalty to, you know, if God is there, you got to be there. Why would you walk away from that? You know, because he understood what it was like to be where God is not, you know, for his first 17 years. And even some of the stuff that happened to him after that was pretty brutal. I still have a lot of his stuff. I still have a, a dream of, like, taking some of his art that's never been framed and framing it. And waiting till the study center's done and nailing oh, it up yeah. and being It'd like, be this awesome. is the Howard G. Hughes yeah. Memorial Study oh, Center. That's what he wanted. Freaking right? awesome. That's what I want. I don't know that anybody else will let me do that. But people I'm, would love to. I so want to have like 20 yeah. Howard Hughes originals around. The people that go to the study right? center would love that. I have a bunch of his paintings yeah. that have never never been framed. Oh, yeah. I probably have 20 paintings that are just unframed. That's so, so cool. I would love. He, was, he taught like a watercolor class, right? Yeah. He taught a watercolor color class for a while, but mostly he painted watercolors. until. And there was like 10 years where he really couldn't. I mean, he got so disabled he couldn't do anything. I don't know if you remember the last basketball tournament, but he couldn't hit the rim. It was amazing that he could drive that truck. You're yeah. killing our team, Howard. I know. <laughs> he had his neck brace on. It's like... Here he is on the court with a neck brace. He was on the team. I don't know if he had played much, but he could not hit the rim. And when he was younger, he was a good basketball player. You talked about it after he died, that he was like, his last wish was like that we would just party. I actually talked to him about that. Oh, God. He brought me this swallow study. He went to the doctor, and they did a swallow study, and he brought it to show me, and it said that you don't swallow and you aspirate your food. And so I was like, okay, so you're probably going to die of pneumonia. Next time you get a respiratory infection, that'll be it. Probably this winter. What are you thinking for funeral? I'm thinking dance party. And he's like, Absolutely. I'm thinking Bible teaching. He's like, absolutely. And then he died in May, on May 3rd, instead of waiting till like winter, which was a surprise. So when you saw that study, were you devastated? No. I mean, that, that was a death sentence. But I knew that it was okay because he was suffering so much. He'd done his thing. He was able to actually plan what would I like as I go out. And I knew that, you know, he'd been, he'd been looking pretty bad for a while. Sure. And so I was like, you know, this is inevitable. And so it's kind of kind of cool to find out in advance that like, oh, look, you're not going to make it through another pneumonia because you, you don't even swallow correctly anymore. The muscles are so weak that if you and you aspirate food, so you will get pneumonia, you will die when it when winter comes. That's probably it. To be able to like see that coming was kind of nice, but I was not expecting him to just suddenly die in May. But I think it got my mother-in-law saved. Because she saw. She was dying of brain cancer at our house. He died first. He was so kind to her and compassionate and gentle. And she had been not a nice person. Cold, hard person her whole life. Anti-God, anti-everything. And then she saw what happened after he died. She saw how everybody loved him. 
And she wouldn't go to the memorial service because she, she was embarrassed and she couldn't hear very well. But she saw that what he had, she didn't have. And she mentioned it. She's like, you know, I don't have that. And so one day she's like complaining. She's like, I want to die. And I was like, you can't just decide to die. God has to let you die. And she's like, we could pray for you to die. And she's like, yeah, we should do that. And so we were talking about that. We're talking about, well, you should have a relationship with God. And she's like, oh, yeah, we should do that. I got me and my wife and my mother-in-law and we all sat there and she prayed to receive christ and nine days later she died it was pretty chaotic time but um well Catherine was really working at being compassionate and warm towards a very very difficult mom who also was being crazy because of the brain cancer i mean what was Catherine like hearing her mom finally like well it had been a relationship with god because it's been 30 forever. years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So what oh, was that she was, like uh, for Catherine? Oh, it was, a, it was like, well, it was cathartic and uh, euphoric at the same yeah. time. Because it was like, I can't believe this happened. Yeah, like pinch myself. I mean, it was, and we didn't know she was going to die in nine days. But we knew that very soon she'd be checked into hospice situation for $9,000 a month. And uh, I just could, I just was envisioning all of her money being drained away in six months or whatever. Um, but we just checked her in. Just, thing, just yeah. write the check. Just check her in. And then very shortly thereafter, uh, she was gone. But that was an amazing experience. I ended up teaching about it on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the Jewish, not God-believing dude came up and hugged me afterwards, our tour guide, because he was so moved by the teaching. It was one of my best teachings ever, and I didn't even have a computer. I wrote so it on a piece like of paper. This, this month and a half or something where your dad died. Yeah. And then your mother-in-law's in your house dying. Mm-hmm. And then after 60, 70 years, she finally desires a relationship with God. Yeah. And then she dies nine days later or whatever. Yeah, it was nuts. It's just got to be like the most emotional roller coaster. It was. It was absolutely mind-blowing. I, I made the connection that, you know, my dad would absolutely die for her to be saved. Mm-hmm. And he did. You know, he was going to die anyway, eventually. But it happened at a time that she could witness what it was like for the body of Christ to rally around one of its own. And if you go back and watch Keith's sermon, he's like, you know, this is the first of our own that we've really yeah, had to Keith's. bury. And so, and she didn't see the sermon per se, but she saw how everybody acted. And for her, that was a more powerful witness than any kind of evidence. And what I didn't know is that she had been exposed to the church when she was very young. And so one day she announced that, oh yeah, we used to go to church when I was little, trying to like get us off her case. And so she knew some stuff that was buried in there somewhere. But it didn't really come out and do anything until, you know, deathbed confession virtually. That was a period of time. Th- that six months was like the feeling that I felt when I first got to Neozenos, where it's just like I was kind of high and I was kind of like, what is going on? You know, this is just like you could just see things happening one after another. That happens every once in a while in your life where you're just like, wow, God's racking them up and knocking them down. So that was one of those times. This Joe Show is me, Joe, and I was joined on today's episode by Dr. Joel Hughes and my co-hosts, Dr. Chris Baker and Kevin Baker. This episode was recorded in June 2019 in the Yellow House in Stowe, Ohio. Our intro music is Folly View by Semaphore, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Do you remember your own name? Do you remember how you own them? From that day, there were moments from that year recorded, written down.
closing song is The Keeper of Histories by Defy the Mall, used under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 license. Both songs can be found at freemusicarchive.org. I should go get Emmy. Yeah. I told her it would only be an hour, so. Yeah, it's been about an hour, two hours ago. Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks, Joel. But yeah, I legitimately think that's going to be the best one. That's yeah. the best one I've ever heard. All right, hey, okay, you guys can see yourself out. Yeah, yep. are thanks you going to so bed? It's like o'clock, dog. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Joel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was, awesome. that was a good time. Yeah, we didn't even okay, talk I, about how. Uh, bring it. We used to meet with Keith. I know. I feel like a lot wasn't covered, but what was covered was very good. Intentionally left out.